So you've been holding out on me when it comes to Arizona. You what? go you go down there back and forth visiting your father. You've never sold this as an interesting place to be. And after going there for the first time, I have to say it's an interesting place to be in, say a, more. in a good way. What did you dig about it? I mean, the air is nice and dry. I love the big sky. I, and I, and it's, I had the same experience when I went to Colorado for the first time, just feeling like the sky is bigger mm. for some reason. It just reminded me a lot of my days in Southern California. Just without the water, what you did know, you, just without the beach. What did you think about the nighttime? The nighttime was beautiful, you know, nice and cool, you know, but still not cold or anything. I don't know. It was maybe it was just good for me to get away from the forties degrees something, thirty degrees something we're we're stuck in right now yeah. <laughs> in Minnesota. But I, yeah. I loved it there. I was always moved by it. It seems like they they don't pollute with light very much. That yeah, many so stars it, at nighttime. Yeah. yeah, it was like a low ceiling of stars. It seemed like you could reach up and scoop up a handful and cactuses they're real they who, are who knew they are me <laughs> and they're and they're nine ten eleven feet tall as got well. it yeah <laughs> uh uh before we jump in uh huge thanks and shout out to our friends over at salestina and that is uh actually a little further west than arizona over in california salestina is classical music's wingman by day they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films by night they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was is and can be i'll speak to some of their upcoming programming here in a bit uh but going to arizona for the first time and the the thing i was out there to do in part is really heady i mean it's going to sound weird when i say it but I was in a group of creators, writers, activists, music educators, orchestral musicians, you know, all of us piled together to create a science fiction story that can paint a positive future for orchestras in our society. I know see, that sounds like a lot, but that's what I was there doing. If you could see my face. It was definitely some hippie stuff, you know, <laughs> but it was, you know, funded by ASU's uh, uh, science department in, in part. And anyway, it was it was really cool doing all that. But going to Arizona for the first time had me thinking about other things that I had done for the first time or the last thing that I did something for the first time. I wonder how you would answer that question. What was the last time you did something for the first time? It's <laughs> like a major thing. It's been a while. Or a minor. I'd have to go major back. Major or minor. Um, I did recently fix my dishwasher. Okay. So now you don't have to lean over the sink every evening? I have not once done it since <laughs> Only, you know, other, other than when you're eating over the sink, but go on. Because that's how I roll. How do you, you've been watching. In my underwear, no less. <laughs> yeah, that's what bachelorhood holds for you. No, there, you know, it would be any household project that I have to go over to YouTube mm -hmm. and find out how to do it. Are you yeah. not intimidated? By, I, I mean, going not anymore. Going in, on YouTube to fix something that I need or that I really want, like my car and mm -hmm. dishwasher, something like that. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's why you watch about half a dozen of them to get the consensus and find out how you should approach yours. But I mean, it, it's, I can't afford to pay somebody to come out and do this shit. Sure. So, so it's I, not a necessity. So, right. So I have to do it. And then if I break it, then, Hey, guess who gets a new dishwasher? But how, how far are you going to go? I mean, are you going to watch YouTube videos about how to put your arm in a splint if you fall down the stairs <laughs> the wrong way? I mean, where do you draw the line? That's Boy, that would be a new thing, wouldn't it? I'm sure there's a YouTube video yeah. about how to do that. And giving myself the Heimlich in case I <laughs> swallow food wrong. So when you're doing all of these first-time projects based on your YouTube research, is there any art that accompanies you or are you a silent 
worker. No, there's there's always got to be music. I've always got something on in the background, whether it's music or the TV. Mm-hmm. I got to hear something. And, you know, usually it was like what, listening to the TV so I could hear somebody else's voice in the house. You know? Sure, sure. But the last few months, I've needed non-triggering music. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you might remember uh, after Radar passed, I was talking about listening to the Pharaoh Sanders release "Promises," sure, and that tri- that pointed my log algorithm on YouTube in a in some really interesting directions. Okay, yeah. What are some of those directions? Well, I, well, what what comes to mind when you think about the music that's been accompanying your first time projects? Well, there's, uh, I don't know if it's a band or an artist named Pogo, hmm. and. I first heard a version of a song uh, slowed down and I thought, oh, this is cool. And it sounds the, the way that they're doing it, it sounds like they've programmed a keyboard to play a different voice at different uh, notes, you know? Oh. So it sounds like you're switching between channels, you know, very quickly. And, um, but that led me to the, the actual album version of, Uh, of this piece by Pogo that it has this really cool vocal effect. like a hocket that's in there yeah that's good but you see what i mean how it sounds like you're jumping between frequencies yeah you know the way the vocals work and i i don't know the beat had me kind of moving a little bit and i knew that vocals were going on but i never hear the lyrics anyway it's something about the beat you're you're reminding me so in in my writing group you know we're creating these science fiction stories over in arizona shout out to dj spooky we went to uh, one session where they were showing off asu imagine like those big metal domed jungle gym things from back in the day but imagine if at every intersection of the metal is a speaker that is supposed to give you the experience of being in a cathedral mm. listening to a thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we were listening to all sorts of examples of stuff. And DJ, Sp- <laughs> DJ Spooky uh, asked a question. He said, can I ask, why are white people so afraid of beats and rhythm? Uh, <laughs> and just <I'm- laughs> and listen, to, hearing, hearing you talking about how the beat caught your attention there is, is having me Think it. Think about that. When we think about classical music or classic aesthetics, all of that stuff, I think what most people automatically go to is the smooth, the very cloudy, the mm. very relaxing, whatever. But there's nothing wrong with a little bit of rhythm in something that you're listening to. No, no. And wh- that that's a pretty straightforward beat, though. I mean, that's, there's nothing, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing too spicy. Maybe you know? <laughs> that, maybe that's what's appealing. You know, is the is the basic nature of it. Sure. But there's to, beauty and simplicity, and having that on in the background, you know, it was it was great. Just to uh, and and that whole stream of music with that that track came up with was, you know, I just needed to fill the air. 
yep. and, and to not be reminded of things. Yep. We have a, a very special guest in the third movement this week. And, you know, what he has me thinking about is the first time, you know, one of the big first times in, in my recent history is going to the Metropolitan Opera for the first time to see fire shut up in my bones. You know, great, great experience. It was it was cool to do all that. What what you laughing at? <laughs> so my experience of the, the first time of something that I haven't done in a while is fixing a dishwasher and Garrett comes in and goes, well, I went to the Met Opera. Well, because I'm not fixing my dishwasher. <laughs> like if I, if and I'm I not going to, to the Met. If I have to put, uh, put it on the credit card for somebody to do it, that's just what's going to happen because mm. I don't trust myself to connect wiring and pipes. By the time I'm done, the whole place will be flooded and I got to call the man anyway <laughs> to come fix it. Anyway, um, so thinking about my first time at the Metropolitan Opera, you know, of course, thinking about what it took to get me there, you know, subject matter or proximity to my blackness. That's what it took. And reaching out, doing these radically different things, you know, so-called radically different things, is not new. You know, that is that is the part of it that's not new. Over the course of music, there have been so many examples of things being far left field that benefit uh, broader audiences and engage broader audiences. And even outside of the opera house in particular, there have been uh, moments in pop culture where opera has sort of stuck its head out. And I think to at least some degree, offered people a little bit more proximity to that art form in particular than they had otherwise. Mm. Do you remember the movie The Fifth Element? Of course, you remember. Yeah. Where, where, did you go to the theaters for it? Or you bet a couple times. <laughs> what was uh What was reception around it at the you know being in the moment when this movie is new? I hung around with a guy who was very into film at that point in time, and he panned it. Mm -hmm. And I sat across. I, I was sitting next to him, and I went, I I love this. <laughs> this is fun. Mm -hmm. This is and there's and there's messages campy, in it but too. in a fun way. Yeah, and there's messages in it and. Uh, Gary Oldman was priceless, I thought, as um, uh, the the bad guy. Sure. I, I forget his character's name. Zorg? Zorg. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I probably told this story on Trilogy before, but uh, when I was a freshman in undergrad, uh, the person who won the concerto competition that happened at the University of Memphis every year was a vocalist. Vocalists and pianists are always put in the same category. So of course, typically a piano solo is wins. Mm -hmm. But this th this year in particular, a vocalist won and she won with an excerpt from uh, Donizetti's Lucia di Lamamor, the, mm -hmm. the famous mad scene. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm getting into it. I learned how to play this thing. So um, my bassoon partner at that point in undergrad, shout out to uh, Keel, Keel Williams. I went over to hang out at his place and he was like, so you know that uh, piece of music that uh, we're performing on the concert next week? I want you to uh, take a listen to this. And he pulled up the fifth element and uh, expanded my world with this one for sure.
Do you remember that? Do you remember seeing that for the first time? Or yeah, <laughs> like do, like do you remember how you felt in that? Because how I felt in the moment was, why aren't we playing that on stage? <laughs> you know, the concerto competition with that. <laughs> yeah, there's a beat. There's another good example of you know a little beat never hurt anybody. Do you think that's something that at least again, considering the fact that you were there when this movie came out at at the theaters. Would this be enough to pique someone's interest or like, oh, that's opera? Or, you know, do, do you see something beyond just creating this cool moment in the film? Here's yeah. a little peek behind the curtain. Even as long as I had been working in classical radio when I saw that movie, I didn't, I was not able to identify the opera it came from. Oh, you didn't know the piece? Yeah. I didn't. So it was a learning experience for me. Yeah. Uh, not only, you know, the one with the with the beat that should be played. Yeah, but the played. opening, yeah, the opening does come from the real. Do right. you know the story behind that? scene in the opera long story short go ahead uh lucia is inv uh invited forced to marry someone <laughs> i see look at me trying to whitewash forced to marry someone that she doesn't want to marry it's the wedding night the wedding celebration all the uh guests are there and she comes downstairs in her white nightgown covered in blood with a knife because she just killed the man that she was uh, forced to marry mm. and then we get this aria with uh, you know her you know they call it the mad scene where it ends with her just passing out and fainting and now she's dead anyway it's an incredible moment if you can sit it's a lot of opera and it's a lot of heavy opera but if you can sit there for long enough to get to that moment moment there's a payoff it is incredible okay. I, I i do have to say and i think that scene from the fifth element is just a little bit if anything it's enough to get someone curious enough about where that music came from to get them to sure. check it out no and, that and have that and have that payoff i i do agree with you on that front i was just illustrating how um even myself working for more than a decade in classical oh, radio sure, was, yeah. was not exposed to that repertoire i mean donizetti isn't yeah. A deep, deep cut, but he's not Brahms. He's not Mozart, right. you know, that, right. that people know. I guess really the the larger point is when we talk about first time experiences, we got to think about what got us to those first time experiences, whether it's not wanting to pay for the dishwasher man to come. And yep. now and now you have uh, ex uh, been exposed to a new piece of music or, uh, <laughs> you know, if it's if it's me. You know, going all the way to the Metropolitan Opera and spending too much money on a ticket, you know, to have mm. a, a new experience. I just think at the end of the day, it's all about that spirit of curiosity, being a curious listener, going to a part of town that you don't frequent and finding a restaurant. See, you know, seeing what it's like, you know, all of these things, I think, are what we really need to engage more and more as individuals and institutions to broaden this thing called classical music. We have that very curious, that omnipotent omnivorous approach as uh the the new york times said yeah. and we're just trying to spread that energy to more of y'all let's go ahead and jump in Scott Blankenship, and this is 
ventriloquy. I guess to be fair, the New York Times also did accuse us of dubious factual claims. Yep. <laughs> and I still stand by the, the the facts are there. It's our opinions that are dubious. Exactly. Very dubious. But we appreciate you being here anyway. Uh, shout out to our uh, returning listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for your support week to week. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the idea of classical music and we expand it to genres and to conversations that haven't been traditionally approximated to that phrase. And we put it all together, all toward the goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to, pass, to check out past opuses and to contribute, visit T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Salestina, presenting on April 28th and 29th. Say Salestina as they en- envelop you in a stunning musical playlist specifically designed to bring on a healing, ugly cry. Drinks before, <laughs> nibbles to follow. That's happening at 8 o'clock on April 28th at the Eddy at the Broad Stage and is happening on the 29th at Barrett Hall at the Pasadena Conservatory. That one will be live streamed. You can get your tickets and get more information at salestina.org. I also want to send uh, this week a very special shout out to everyone at WFMT uh, for continuing to press out Gateways Radio. The show, Scott, is up to 100 um, and and fifty six markets. Oh, I mean, that's good. a lot. You yeah. know, I've, I've I've never had that broad of a of a listenership. Certainly uh, not for pre recorded radio. So shout out to everyone who's been checking out and enjoying Gateways Radio. I also want to send a very special shout out this week to Chanel Williams from the Metropolitan Opera uh, for setting us up uh, to have a conversation for me to uh, showcase a conversation with Terrence Blanchard. Very happy Big to day. Um, uh, share that with y'all. That's coming up in the third movement. In the second movement, we're going to visit both London and Brazil with some, you know, nice classical music outside of the uh, typical ways of thinking about uh, that phrase. Both of your faves, whether you are conservative or uh, more progressive, your faves have been fired from cable news. Yeah. What about (laughs) what is in the water, man? We're going to talk about that in the finale this week. But for now, we're going to jump into movement one. Get us going this week with the accidentals. What accidental you want to give what you've brought I'm in? I'm giving this one a sharpity sharp. Okay. Um, I am reading here from seattletimes.com. The headline is A Fresh Approach to Classical Music Engages Live Audiences. This is nothing new to the Triloquy podcast. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this quite a bit. And now we have uh, an example of an ensemble that's been around for about 10 years that is finding success in taking the steps that we, you and I, have been crowing about. Yeah, you said, said, we've been here on this conversation. Right, and uh, (laughs) the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra has been there on the front lines of trying to offer um, more diverse and varied programs. For example, this starts off with, in February, Chinese-American composer Wu Fei participated in a performance of her work with the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra. The rapt audience, now they were, so they're engaged, listened as she played the Guzheng, a Chinese plucked zither, and conducted improvised musical selections using traffic batons and light-up gloves. So there's also a visual component. Yeah. Um, And I love the conductor's quote right out the gate. Mm -hmm. Many orchestras act like museums of works. Yep. (laughs) so um he says orchestras frequently perform a selection of well-known classical pieces 
uh, often composed hundreds of years ago. So it's no wonder that some might perceive a night of classical music as a stale, inaccessible affair. That's not a difficult concept. And we could say that every single week. And, and, yet, and have. And, and Yeah, and have. And yet some people find a reason to, to maintain that status quo. Mm-hmm. What do you think about what it's going to take to change it? I, I've, I've been here, you know, before I've had a bachelor's degree, you know, much less entered uh, the field. People talking about orchestras are just museums or, or museum pieces. Mm-hmm. We all love the occasional trip to the museum. We have beautiful museums here. When in, was the uh, last Minnesota. time you went to a museum? It wasn't that long ago. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think. When we go out of town, when me and Dell go out of town, we typically uh, visit a museum. In, in Arizona, outside of Tempe, actually, mm. there's the Musical mm. Instrument Museum, mm. you know, that, that was really okay. uh, phenomenal. But at the end of the day, that's not something I'm going to engage every week, maybe not every month, if it's just the same thing, you know. And again, not to diminish the, the act of going to a museum, you know, or whatever, but it seems like for a performing arts organization, it has to be so much more than that. And yet we're still repeating ourselves over and over again, comparing orchestras to dusty, stale museums that, mm-hmm. you know, who wants to go to, what, what, what person without that cultural or, uh, or, you know, just the track record of being engaged in it, who wants to go do that every day? If I make the decision to go listen to a Mozart's Requiem, it's not because I'm curious, it's because I already have a connection to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like mm-hmm. that lack of connection is really what orchestras need to consider when we talk about this issue of museum pieces of orchestras as opposed to places of discovery and entertainment. Sure. I think that when it comes to the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra, I think it takes that effort to um, go past the canon. Mm -hmm. And so that's my question to you on that front. Do you think that certain areas of the country, and I'm, I'm, I'm basically saying metro areas, have a better shot at being successful with this sort of a model than others. Okay, because this is Washington State. Right. I think the culture of the place has to be considered. So music by Wu Fei may not hit in Smallsville, Georgia, Mm -hmm. or, or Alabama. But that's not to say that there isn't culture there that those orchestras can't platform and can't uphold. I think in metropolitan areas, you have more diverse audiences and more diverse communities. So when you pull in a a Chinese Guzheng player, they're going to be people who are curious or have that connection that I was talking about uh, uh, before. And it seems like that's the case here. Just a curious enough, you know, creating and cultivating that culture of curiosity to make this a concert that people don't want to miss. There is a, a huge Asian presence in yeah. the Seattle area. Sure. You know, that, so they're serving that, that community for sure. Yeah. But also this is, you know, these are things that they're doing uh, in concert uh, together with uh, other things that we've also talked about. So this is, they're really taking a multi-pronged approach at getting uh, diverse audiences in because they're also talking about uh, removing the barrier between the audience and uh, the conductor. So the, the conductor is doing more interacting with the crowd mm-hmm. and more of a come as you are sort of approach. So the, they also address dress. You know, you hmm. can um, you can come more casual. And even on Sundays, they're saying, you know, if you want to show up in sandals and shorts, it's cool. You know, whatever, however you are. So 
I think that they're having success with that because they are taking away so many of the barriers that people have experienced to, uh, to, to get exposed to anything, let alone new music. You know, yeah. how, how, how are, if you don't have something nice to go and wear to some, you know, Canon concert, what you're gonna you're gonna be shunned if nice, you show nice, up in, in jeans and nice is relative because you know that that is something that i can say i've noticed really you know being thrown out the window more and more this idea that you're supposed to dress fancy to the orchestra a every time i go i see jeans i, I see people sure, doing doing sure. their things so, absolutely but i think at the end of the day what we're talking about are organizations that are centering the audience but actually doing that not centering what they think people want to hear, not censoring the tradition, not even censoring necessarily what the musicians want to bring to the front, mm -hmm. but really censoring the audience experience. One of the really, um, something that I think is really profound that I pulled from my Buddhist practice, it's this idea that it's not important for something to be said, it's important for something to be heard. That mm -hmm. that That mm -hmm. is what makes the thing that's being said or heard important and and vital not the again not the fact that it's being said but the fact that it's being heard so what if we center the people hearing in all of our decisions and in and and everything we do it's something again it feels like an easy answer but sure there there obviously are so many things that are keeping that from actually taking place on a broad level but the the conductor is also doing something that i think would improve the experience for everyone mm -hmm. and that is giving context between the canon and the new compositions so uh he got up uh, in this in the article it talks about how he got up and talked about wufei's composition that uh affected jewish refugees in in shanghai after yeah. world war ii which i had no idea existed and he's talking about some sort of a um uh they, they built secret codes embedded into uh, hmm. a, a piece of music that was on the program. So if he is able to tie Wu Fei's composition in with this thing that has secret codes, you know, when it was composed in Auschwitz yeah, and tie that to Mozart's Requiem that's on there, I'm listening. Oh, I'm Mozart's listening. Requiem was on this concert because I just threw that out as an example. So that was on the concert. Okay. Well, it was a Mozart piece. I'm, oh, I'm, sure. But, you know, and, but which, well, two things. Uh, highlighting again a few weeks uh, back, I had a conversation with Tommy Doherty on the show. Right. What did he say at the end of our conversation? But it's up to the conductors to really, you know, be forward about this repertoire and expanding mm. things. Mm. Last week we were talking about Yannick, who mm. has really run with the ball, you know, when it comes to diversity and, and having autonomy over programming i think we just need to say that more and more and more really when we look at an institution and you know if if the bullet hits you know it was meant for you looking at these institutions looking at their programming and instead of just broadly or spatially or abstractly thinking about oh this institution thinking about some of the actual individuals who make these decisions mm -hmm. thinking about the conductor as a player and the maintenance of the status quo or dismantling of the status quo but anyway the set the other thing that i wanted to get to is we always return to this conversation of so-called balanced programming mm -hmm. or the new music piece needing to be accompanied by something from the more uh, traditional canon, quote unquote, in a similar way that for someone to physically enter a concert hall, it's best if they have someone on their arm or, you know, are accompanied by someone that 
makes them feel like they belong or highlights to everyone else that hmm. this person belongs. I think about that metaphor when I think about this idea of balanced programming. And again, it's not necessarily that we have to throw away every piece from the Western European canon. I just don't like the idea that we are compelled to always attach a, a new piece of music or a new aesthetic or something new coming from the orchestra to something standard. That's sure. not required. You can have a night full of new music in the same way that, you know, people have nights full of the of the canon, full of the traditional repertoire. I just don't like the idea that new music has to be accompanied by something by Mozart or Beethoven or Brahms. Well, I I agree with you, but I also think that in the instance of the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra here, they're doing it where it makes sense. Sure. So if you can making you can, genuine connections. Right, right. So if you can if you can thread things together in a way that makes sense, then you know it I'm for that. Yeah. But just putting on a Corelli Concerto Grosso at the end of a concert, then I mean, come on. <laughs> Don't just do that. I agree with you. Certainly you know? not that. <laughs> no. We're going to do a Burt Whistle survey over the next couple weeks here. So, no, but basically the, uh, the, the, the general vibe here that he's getting at is find what barriers you can remove. Yeah. Not all removals are going to make sense in for every orchestra or every ensemble. Mm -hmm. So just look at the barriers that you can remove that make sense for you. And maybe that will result in more people coming in to see your concerts. And, and that's the last point that he makes is he really wants to get back to the point where we're experiencing music together in a group, you know, to have that level of excitement. Yeah, I'll read that. It says, coming out of COVID is more obvious to me that there's no replacement for live concerts. There's something unique about sitting in a concert hall with 1,500 people all listening. As performers, we pick up on the energy coming from the hall, and it affects how we perform. The audience is part of the performance. Agreed. Again, what I was saying before, the important part is that this music is being heard, not that it's being played. I think over COVID, <laughs> over COVID sorry, I'm laughing. I'm just thinking about some of the content that came from uh, that, that time when everyone was at home. You really saw the degree to which many presenters really need the audience. I'm thinking about the audience-less wrestling that was on TV. <laughs> oh, was it was so like a weird performance art, but weird in a good way. Like I, I honestly <laughs> liked that as well, but because it was weird and different. But at the end of the day, it is stark to see how different an audience presence makes. Um, and if that audience actually happens to be engaged by yeah. what's being presented, yeah. even better. So shout out to everyone at uh, the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra. Uh, is the, you said that's Seattle area or uh, Bellingham, Washington? Yeah, yeah. I'll have mm -hmm. to see. That's another first. Uh, first, I'll have to uh, experience. I've never been to Washington State or Oregon. Oh, at, you... at least not outside of the airport. You yeah. know, so yeah, it's beautiful. We'll have to figure that out. I don't know how many. Um, I don't know. I think of that as a, a very non-diverse part of the it. country. I knew. Well, maybe a very non-black part of the country. So, I mean, I know that it's misty and raining all the time. Am I going to be able to get my hair done or I got to walk around looking crazy the whole time? Because, you know, <laughs> no, there are people there. Shout out to Quentin Morris and all those folks <laughs> who have been on Triloquy who are in, the, in that area. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, we're going to transition out of this uh, with the Lehigh University Philharmonic's take on one of the pieces that was named in this article is Wu Fei's Hello Gold Mountain, a work for orchestra that features Gujang voice and oud. So in this performance, we have Wu Fei uh, offering her voice and playing the Gujang alongside Shanir Ezra Blumenkranz playing the oud. Paul Salerni 
conducts a really cool piece of music here. Hello, Gold Mountain by Wufei. And that's the thing about it. No one is saying that this music can't be beautiful. No one is even saying that this music can't be relaxing or, or, or whatever sort of trope we want to put on orchestral music. Right. The point is that it speaks to a broader audience. It speaks to broader experiences and pulls in even people who don't, you know, uh, see themselves directly in music from China. You know, I'm mm -hmm. I'm not Chinese, but I'm very engaged by that music because it's offering something that I haven't heard before, something that I don't typically hear. I think mm -hmm. that again as we were talking about in the intro, that has to be more the spirit that we're encouraging audiences and institutions to go into that spirit of curiosity, really cultivating looking for the new as opposed to looking for the typical or sure. what we've heard before. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, well, I'm a Coming in, look, I've I've really been working hard not to do too many of these flats, but I'm gonna just have to give this one the flat. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm reading from CSO.org. You love it. The title is The Jerusalem Quartet Believes in the Power of the Standard Repertoire. Talk to me about that title just to get us started. The power of the standard repertoire. Is there power in programming that is what it's always been? I that no, I mean, but, because but, that 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 seems to be what this uh this title is getting at that there is power in maintaining the status quo in classical music. Mm, I don't read it that way. I I read it as um they're the standard. They're going to be the standard bearers. They're 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 <laughs> they're they're going to they're going to keep the uh, the roots alive. That's that's what I hear. Okay. Okay, well, let me read a little bit. Uh, it says, before Ori Kamm joined the Jerusalem Quartet, he spent two years in the viola section of the Berlin Philharmonic. Ask him about the differences, and the first thing he mentions is the travel. Quote, a quartet spends almost all of its time on the road. A symphony orchestra gets to live where they work, and we can only dream about that. A string quartet is kind of a business. We don't get a salary, and everything we do, we're responsible for. Before we, you know, before I dig into these assumptions and, and these accusations about the power of the standard repertoire, I will say that I feel that as someone who, you know, spent a few years of my life living out of a suitcase, you know, commuting yeah. between different cities, I'm doing more and more of that now in my work. It's definitely very taxing. It does feel like a luxury to think about not going to the airport for 15 days in a row or 30 days in a row or, or, or whatever. That's sure. not my reality now. So I definitely hear him, but he's talking about the unique challenges of being in a, a professional string quartet. With that being said, and what they uh, highlight here in the article is that that challenge comes with a bit of responsibility. There's no one telling them what to play or telling them what to program. Those are decisions that they have to make on their own. And for me, 
having that freedom is only a reason to explore even further into the expanses of the repertoire and to not stick to what's standard. Mm -hmm. If you had full freedom over your musical presentations, over your work, I'm sure it would sound a little different, would it not? Sure. In what ways of course would it, it would. In what ways would it sound different? I would be playing more living composers. Mm -hmm. I would be focusing on things that happen from the Romantic era forward. Right. Um, but mainly, I, I want to see the, the people who are writing music right now thrive so that in 100 years from now, we can be saying their names. Right. 200 years, 300 years. Let's hope that that happens. That's my, that's my hope. So with that, again, that's that's why it really uh, proverbially pokes the bear for me to hear people with so much freedom and, and so much uh, autonomy speak to the traditional repertoire being where the power is or, or where the opportunity to engage new listeners is. It, it just doesn't really resonate with me at all. Yeah, the, it, it seems to me like when a group like this says that, you know, we're we're going to basically it says we're, we're going to play stuff that's not going to make you uncomfortable mm -hmm. and but they'll also build themselves as playing like the unheard gems from some of these composers sure sure so perhaps that's a a, a piece of it you know that they're going to decide to play bartok's unknown pieces or something like that i don't know yeah their show as, as as we're recording this uh their show in chicago is coming up it says for its concert in chicago the quartet will be a sextet as the members will be joined by pinkus zuckerman and amanda forsyth they'll be performing works by bruckner dvorak and brahms uh cam estimates that 20 percent of the quartet's concerts use a guest musician apart from the core four and zuckerman and forsyth are like extended family or repeat offenders i like that idea of repeat offender more than extended family because yeah, again we're, we're we're getting to the same old thing bruckner is great he's a little long <laughs> typically right but he's great Dvorak you know he came over here and said black music is the foundation and y'all don't want to listen to him mm -hmm. and then we have Brahms who is you know overplayed in, in his own way and in my opinion this just is not programming that shines a light on the future much less possibilities that ensembles institutions have to make sure that this thing survives to me this is putting this is a uh, uh, etching uh, an, another letter on the tombstone it's it's right. not pushing us forward right i see what you're saying and 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 it's not like there aren't other ensembles out there doing this exact same thing exactly the very similar and, programs even. right um i've interviewed pincus and he is very much a traditionalist um, you know, one of the quotes I remember him saying, he was talking about, you have to play what's on the page. That's what it is. It must be that. But it's so, not. Well, it's not. You yeah. Know? Okay. So, the, you know, if, if there is power, if there is power in the, in the canon, in the, the bedrock or anything that, that I can, I can see power of paying respect to where everything came from, mm -hmm. but they're not pointing where it's going. <laughs> so the, you're not going to miss the thing. that when you have that you have to play what's on the page mentality you're automatically decentering the audience at the very least the majority of the audience because the audience does not know what's on the page and i would go as far as to say most of them don't care they're just there to hear some really great music a beautiful performance so you know with that sort of traditional idea of musical excellence or 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 really executing this thing correctly again it's that's how quickly we move away 
from the audience. We're centering the tradition. We're centering a, a dead white man. You know, we're we're centering this inanimate object that is a, a page of sheet music. We mm-hmm. aren't centering the audience perspective, the audience experience, and any of that. Speaking of audience, you asked me how I would change the mind of of someone going to this concert sure. who, who is who's not an adventurous listener mm-hmm. and i would ask why do i have to why do i have to change their name mm-hmm. like not change their name change their mind yeah i think it's a good question because we have to consider those people if we you know you you proposed a couple seasons ago <laughs> the all black season which orchestra is going probably yannick if it's, if it's going to happen <laughs> he'll be the one yeah. so you know yeah. I, so I guess then the question to Yannick, if, if we're going along those lines, are what do you do with the folks who are just dying to hear Brahms or just dying to hear Rachmaninoff? I understand that we don't want to leave people completely behind, but people are getting left behind. There are people that are not being engaged. So why are those folks more important than the people who have yet to be engaged? Oh, by you the know that answer. Well, no, well, then we'll say it out loud then if I know the answer. They got the money to pay for the ticket. They got the money to support the, the, the organizations that do this thing. So we're talking about institutions that center earned income and revenue over engagement. We've, we've, we've talked about this. How do you attract the new audience without dropping too many of the old they don't want to they don't want to alienate the crowd that they have mm-hmm. because that's the teat that is where <laughs> the milk is coming from sure sure i think you don't we, like that analogy no no that's that's fine i think we have to stop pretending that uh non-profit organizations in general are different than for-profit organizations at their foundations right. of just being money machines right. like that that's the purpose of it i think orchestras arts institutions in general have uh hidden under this idea of being benevolent being community focused not being like those corporations that are all about money when at the end of the day that is what they're all about that, that that's what you're telling me Right now, they don't want to isolate the existent, uh, existing audiences and have no problem keeping uh, audiences that haven't been engaged, isolated, all because of money. Yep. Mm, that's, what mm, I, that, mm. that's what I'm saying. Well, not every organization. Not, no, no one said every, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll go to the end of this piece here. It says, although the Jerusalem Quartet has released a CD of Yiddish cabaret music from the interwar period, they do not venture into klezmer. Quote, it's not really what we do. We're a very traditional quartet. We love the standard repertoire and we believe in the power of it, not just artistically, but for entertainment and for the enjoyment of the audience. I don't think it's for the enjoyment of the audience. I think it's for the enjoyment of the musician and for the enjoyment of the the, the status quo. Even use of the phrase standard repertoire, we really have to continue to critique as we do here every every single week. Sure. Mm. But we have also we have also said uh, if if that's what you're going to do, say that and move forward, and just and just keep going. And they've and they've done that. That klezmer is not what we do. We're traditional. Great. So is that you've what, said it? Go do it. So I guess that's what we just need. That that's the next step of the work. If someone says what they're going to do and what they're not going to do, take take their word. Let that be and move on to the next area. And let them survive or die as the market deems to do it. Okay, well, 
Y'all heard it. We'll see where the Jerusalem Quartet <laughs> is in 15, 20 years. But anyway, love you guys. We're going to um, transition into the second movement with a little bit of string quartet music. Another one of the composers from the so called standard repertoire that was mentioned in this piece was uh, Bela Bartok. A couple seasons ago, maybe just last season, uh, we highlighted a drummer named Christian Tom Blay, who has done a really phenomenal job of taking string quartets and adding one instrument, adding one ingredient, adding drum set, and it changes the whole feel of the performance. We haven't sacrificed the integrity of the music. All of the notes and rhythms and dynamics and all of that stuff is there. We've just added a little something that makes it a little bit more interesting. So we're going to resample that again. This is Christian Tom Blay playing drums over the string quartet number four, the fifth movement of Bela Bartok, and we'll see what we think about it. Has the music been bastardized? Has the music been damaged? Is there anything wrong other than the fact that we've just added a little seasoning into the mix? Sure, it's a, a remix or a, a, a revision. Uh, the, the drummer's name again? Christian Tomblay. That guy's talented to yep. be able to make the drums match with the rest of the chords. I mean, he has to he be familiar knows, with the piece. He you know, knows this music. He's probably looking at the score. So he's he is as studied and as learned as anyone because he has to understand the piece of music and he can engage us a little bit more through this string quartet medium. I'm not saying that every string quartet needs to go out and hire a drummer. But what I am saying is that it's a lot of y'all playing Brahms. It's a lot of y'all playing Dvorak. Why would I go and listen to y'all? Why would I go and buy a ticket to your performance? What are you uniquely bringing to the field? Just like we have these orchestras that are called, you know, insert city name orchestra. Mm -hmm. We have so many string quartets that are the this quartet or the that quartet. Well, what makes you different? What 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 makes you that string quartet that you're that you're named after? Mm -hmm. I think that has to be more of the conversation but l like you said if 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 folks you know want to stick to the same old and they telling us what they doing and that's that then they can maybe go over there. It, maybe it is more healthy to mo to move on and to engage folks who are interested in engaging broader audiences just as we're moving on to the second movement right now where scott and i are going to share <laughs> nice a little music catch. that we've been uh, spending some time with i'm going to get us started so last week um you asked me if i had ever played in the orchestra for a guitar concerto mm -hmm. and the first thing that came to my mind was uh two brazilian guitarists who i played uh with at a sphinx conference years ago well i, I went back and, and did some searching and that duo is simply enough the brazilian guitar duo there they, they do uh, really incredible work and back in 2016 i had the pleasure of playing contrabassoon with the sphinx symphony orchestra in a performance of a, a double guitar concerto by paolo bellinati is that a that's a name that you've heard i'm sure as a sure guitar aficionado. yeah brazilian composer yep how would you separate again talking about what one uniquely brings to the field what makes bellinati different from rodrigo or the other uh spanish oh, stuff that yeah, people the, are more the, used to the portuguese influence sure yeah so there's um that that sultry uh tango influence uh comes in whereas it's more the andalusian vibe for the spanish composers and sure. that but um he also <clears throat> speaks to the um 
Koboklo uh, is the uh, people who come from mixed heritage, mm-hmm. which many people in Brazil are. So and, they, and not just like being mixed, quote unquote, but like one's identity being a culmination of many different cultures and many different aesthetics. Sure. And, and that's what I think is represented um, in a lot of his music. Again, this is uh, uh, an excerpt from his concerto for two guitars. Definitely sultry in its own way, but also really energetic and spicy. That's really the reason I love it so much. I mean, uh, when I say spice, I, I guess anytime I hear maracas or or, mm. or the the shaken percussion instruments, I, I think about spice. And you know, to go back to your point about mixed heritage and and mixed experience, you know, what a perfect work to be platformed by the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra. So many people, mm-hmm. even just for a weekend, coming from different parts of the country, different walks of life, different mm-hmm. areas of the classical music field, all to create this music, a great memory of mine. So I'm glad that you inspired that memory during International uh, Guitar Month. Be sure to go check out the Brazil Guitar Duo if you're unfamiliar with them, and also the music of Paolo Bellinati, some great American music, South American, but American nonetheless. (laughs) Nice catch. (laughs) Anyway, that's mine. What you got? Well, as I'd mentioned, uh, I was back into a mode where I needed non-triggering sounds and the... um, logarithm the algorithm of youtube was very kind in providing new music that was not at all it, it was it's like a tub of warm water mm. in that i it was new but i could there was still a warmth about it that i could go oh this is exactly what i need yeah and one of the bands that came up and has been ever since is the portico quartet and this was also probably part of my search for non-traditional ensembles mm-hmm. out of london this is a band that you know they've got their their bass and the saxophone you know the, some of the usual suspects are there but are you familiar with a hang drum i'm not okay so for those who don't know what a hang drum is think of a steel drum but it's upside down and in your lap so instead of being oh, concaved okay. you're playing the dome oh sure and so not only are you getting tones, but you're also getting that percussive slap or, or the ping as you play it. And you know, the, some of these instruments get real expensive. You can go over to Asia somewhere and have them tuned to your soul. Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to cost. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've got a version of one sitting right over here. Yep. And it starts off with just this little sort of like pitter-pat rain with uh, the hang drum. But when the soprano saxophone part of it comes in, 
I don't know, it just kind of makes me turn my head to the side and go, oh, this is nice. If you want to walk around feeling like you're in a Wes Anderson film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me, it just reminds me of sunny weather. It reminds me of just free time. I know I say that about a, a lot of tunes, but it just it, it just sounds like Saturday afternoon. And that's all there yeah. is. Saturday yeah. afternoon. Yeah. And no trouble. Mm-hmm. Nowhere to be and all day to get there. You know, one of the other things that that music makes me think about, and, and even going back to that Bellinati as performed by the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra, I know we spend a lot of time, and uh, and maybe I will take more credit <laughs> than you will. I spend a lot of time shitting on orchestras <laughs> and the and the traditional structures. You know, one of the things that this trip to Arizona, you know, helped me think about. Maybe I had a little bit more time to think. There, there is some good use of this machinery that we have put together called an orchestra, called classical radio. There, you know, it, it it doesn't necessarily just need to all be burned down, but it's the use of the thing mm. that really has to be shifted. There's no reason for music like that to not be showcased on classical radio for me. And I understand that there are so many things that people can say about core sound and and target audience and that sort of thing. Of but we're listening to beautiful classical music here that should be included not only in the conversation but in the programming we can utilize our systems to something to help expand audiences and expand ideas around the idea of classical music we just got to do it we have to have that sense of discovery we have to have open enough ears to just know what's out there you know so when you're fixing the dishwasher or whatever just allow yourself to go down a rabbit hole you've you've never been down before and actually implementing that doing doing something to to push this thing forward you know that's that's why week after week I am very uncomfortable. You know, I would never come on here and highlight my favorite portion of Beethoven three, even though there are parts of that symphony that I do love and, and much of the so-called traditional repertoire. That's not what this machine called Triloquy is built to do. Orchestras, radio stations, conservatories, I understand what they were built to do. We can use that to just pivot us into a, a different direction without burning the whole thing down. Now, mm-hmm. if, if it comes to that, it 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 comes to that. You know, not not literally necessarily, but I'm following. <laughs> but I'll, I'll again, all my point is, you know, listening to that music just really has me returning to this thought that we can use the systems that we have for good, for discovery, for something broader. We just have to do it. I'm in agreement with you. I've been saying the same that the bones of the of the the structure are good. We just need to we just need to rebuild from the studs. Yeah. Um so what do you say that that's not what we do. 
was the end was the end quote from the was it the Israel yeah, Jerusalem the Jerusalem quartet quartet yeah. okay so you play that for some music director or program director at a station or a, a music director for uh, some ensemble and they say yeah that's really nice yeah it's great but that's not what we do and then my response is well what we do quote unquote is not sustainable it's not gonna last it just isn't and i know in many people's minds that's not true you know of course there will always be orchestras there will always be classical music people will always be looking for beethoven that's just not my reality i don't i don't see that and maybe i'm wrong i'm and i'm i'm willing to be wrong but in my genuine opinion it's that expansion is that using the existing systems for something new and broadened that's where the that's where the survival is going to come in not doing the same what what other art form works that way v visual art looks very different over the generations not everyone is painting in that classical greek style that we appreciate mm -hmm. you know but it's not the only thing it's the same with this music no i'm you you're preaching to the choir <laughs> preaching to the preacher yeah all right well uh, we're uh transitioning into the third movement uh and i'm again very proud and very honored to feature my conversation with terrence blanchard terrence has uh his opera champion at the metropolitan opera right now so fire shut up in my bones got a lot of attention but yeah, before okay. he wrote that he wrote champion i'm gonna uh just read a little bit uh from an npr article champion tells the story of emil griffith a closeted gay boxer in an era when gay people were outcasts who rises from obscurity to become world champion and in one of the great tragedies in sports history kills his homophobic arch rival in the ring damn that's an opera that <laughs> that's something you know you're, you're you're talking about uh affirmation for gay people you're talking about uh shirtless men in the ring like sign me up yeah, you know? <laughs> anyway me and terrence talk about a uh, champion we talk about some of his broader work um as a composer and what he feels like institutions and the culture at large needs to do to move forward one of the first things that i if i, I told myself if i ever met terrence blanchard i have to tell him how much i truly truly appreciate not only his his soundtrack to the movie X, Malcolm X, you, you know, when, when Denzel Washington was Malcolm X, mm -hmm. not only the, the score in general, but one cut in particular called Going to Mecca. It's always been a favorite right. of mine. So I played that on the ear so many times. Oh, yeah. So yeah. we're going to listen to a little bit of that uh, to get us into my conversation with Terrence Blanchard. Hope you all enjoy. First thing we have to break on is break down is the word classical. You know, my composition teacher didn't necessarily refer to that word. You know, because the thing that he would say was there's so many other types of musics that can become classics. You know, that's so that's the reason why he wouldn't use that. But the thing that he would, the thing that he made me realize is that in that orchestral world, you know, great composers have taken folklore and and built upon it. You know, so you look at Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is an example that I always use. You know, you can hear the Hungarian folk music in his larger works, hmm. right? So I think that's what 
composers who are writing for the orchestral scenario have to really take into account now, you know, jazz is very much a big part of American culture, has been since its inception of the music, I should say. Um, And um, there's no reason why any of that DNA shouldn't find its way into any classical or orchestral composition. You know, you, you saw it with the with the with the musicals. Um, oh man, I can't think of the composer's name right now. Oh man, he did the big musical. He was a conductor. Oh. Uh, Bernstein, is it? Yes, yes. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Having a brain fart this morning. Um, you saw it in his work. You know, you could you could hear the influence of American jazz on what it is that he was writing, uh, and I just t- try to take the 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 uh, the evolving DNA of jazz and try to use and try to use that in what it is that I'm doing with the other portion of my life. Writing, we're, de- we're definitely going to talk about your operas, but I have to tell you, my favorite Terrence Blanchard musical moment is the cut from the movie X called Temeca. I think it was oh. just a really brilliant application mm. of the setting in mm. a musical way. What does it mean to you now that folks are still going back and and not only looking at that movie, but listening to your music as an important part of that film? Well, I mean, it's a huge compliment, first of all. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I really appreciate people doing that. Um, at, at the same time, man, it's one of those moments in your life where you feel really feel blessed to have had, you know, almost because when I did Jungle Fever, I didn't think Spike was going to call me to do Malcolm X. It was such a big film. I thought he was just going to get somebody else. But, you know, once we did it, once he called me, I did a lot of homework, man. I I studied some scores. You know, I tried to be on my game, you know, uh, in terms of writing for that. And I learned a great deal. You know, and I took that same approach that I was trying to tell you earlier of like taking the DNA of the culture and using that as 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 a building block for what it is that you write for the film. Um, you know, uh, I studied with Roger Dickinson was my first composition teacher. Then I studied with another guy named uh, uh, Hale Smith, who also oh, yeah. was yeah, and it was a great uh, composer also. And I remember Hale telling me, you know, <laughs> it was pretty funny. He goes, he says. Looks like you're trying to control this vast amount of space without being able to control this small amount of space. Mm. And that was the beginning of how things turned around for me, of taking that small little nugget of DNA and being able to use it as a building block for something else. And when I'm teaching, I always tell my students, what's the best example of that? You know, Beethoven's Fifth. It's the best example of how to utilize that. Now... It's grown into, you know, into other things that you can be more subtle and more sophisticated with it, obviously. I shouldn't say more sophisticated, but more creative with it, you know, obviously. But that's still <clears throat> how that particular scene came about. How far of a how big of a gap do you think there is either perceived or in reality between improvisation and composition. When I think about, you know, what you've done as a musician, it seems like those worlds are completely separate, but obviously you've mastered them both. I wonder if there's a relationship there that you think about. Well, yeah, the the, the thing that's always interesting about that 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 question to me is that, you know, 
listen, man, that's 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 what Bachman were doing hmm. when you it's it's you know that that whole figure based thing, you know that, that those guys were they would call people up for a gig, and they would have the melodies, but they knew what the harmony was underneath, and they would improvise those harmonies based on that system, you know that 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 uh, they used. So it's it's an interesting thing to me because in a certain realm, improvisation has been around for a long time. You know, it's just that in jazz we get a chance to be a little more expressive with it. And, you know, it, it allows us to, to bring everything to bear, everything, you know, rhythm, harmony, melodic uh, development, thematic development, you know, and, and I think, you know, when introducing that back into the realm of orchestral music, you know, it, it, it opens the eyes for a lot of people, you know, in that, in that world. Because um, man, I remember um, doing a record where we had this uh, cellist who was a, who was a, um, a music his, historian, and uh, he was watching what we were doing, and he was the one that really opened my eyes to it. I mean, I knew about it theoretically when I was in high school; I knew that, but he went into great detail about how those guys were improvising back then, and he was blown away by what it what he saw us doing because he said, this is what happened with in box day, what you guys are doing right now. And cause he was a classical musician who'd never really been around improvising musicians. And it was just some, it was, it was just something that opened his mind up to his own uh, existence in terms of the music that he had studied. When I think about improvisation being something that we have to reintroduce into the so-called classical realm, I can't help but to think about, racial politics and its role within the music field that may have isolated improvisation from what we think about as classical music. How important, and from your perspective, is recognizing that fact as we continue to expand orchestral music? Well, it's, it's extremely important. I mean, let's, let's, we, we, we don't have to sugarcoat the whole notion of how sometimes where the innovation comes from creates the problem. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's all about perception. We just saw it and women's basketball, you know, in the college ranks where one young lady did a gesture that was heralded as something as swagger and and and, and having confidence and another young lady who was African American did the same thing and she was called an idiot, mm -hmm. you know. So it's those those perceptions are things that go well beyond the art itself, you know, and that's that's a bigger life issue, you know, but the thing that we have to do is maintain, you know, our thoughts and and how we can't allow that to stifle our creativity. Hmm. You know, we, we, you still have to be the, the 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 best artist you can be. You have to be the most creative artist you can be. And I think, you know, being having that mindset um, allows you to create music that may take time for people to come to. You know, but when it starts to really develop itself, it can hopefully open the doors to some other things. You know, um, I'm very aware of, of how that works socially, you know, and, and outside of the, the world of music, you know, but you can't let it affect you. And, and the thing that I try to do now, especially now, is always work with like-minded people. 
you know um the 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 thing that's really going back to that basketball thing that happened mm -hmm. everybody was offended by what the young african-american girl did you know who wasn't offended the other girl the white girl who did exactly the same thing mm -hmm. because she was a competitor so the same thing happens in the world of art you know um i heard that horowitz and art tatum were the best of friends because they both could really appreciate what each other was bringing to the table you know it's always the outside uh, noise that creates the, the 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 problem. It's how, but we can't be concerned with that. You know, as an artist, you have to be the best artist you can be. That's your God given right, uh, and your and and that's your your obligation. You know, and and no matter where it takes you, you know, you because that's why you're here on this planet. You know, to help us evolve as a species. You know, that was the thing that was given to me by Wayne Shorter. Hmm. He said, evolution is, 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 is the thing, you know, so we can't stay in one place, you know, and you're never staying in one place anyway. That's the thing that always amazes me about some people who think that way, you know, trying to maintain the status quo. You're never staying in one place anyway, because while you're staying in one place, the world is moving forward. So you're actually moving backward. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to your engagement of opera as an art lover, as a music lover before writing Champion or, or Fire Shut Up On My Bones. And the context I'm thinking about this question within is sort of what you were speaking to, the idea that some people who look a certain way don't belong in a space or can't be engaged by a certain art form. I wonder what that's been like for you. It's been, a, it's been an interesting existence, man, because, see, I, I, I wasn't. You know, I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of opera, but, you know, my father listened to opera all the time. So I heard it all the time. You know, I was more of a fan of, of, of traditional orchestral music than anything, hmm. you know, um, mainly because I'm a trumpet player. So, you know, <laughs> the, the Rite of Spring was <laughs> much more enjoyable to me. Um, but once I was commissioned to do this, man, I've fallen in love with the art form, you know, and I, I think um, <laughs> it's 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 been an interesting existence for me because I, I still feel like even though I've written two operas, I feel I still feel like a newbie in this world because there's there's so much to learn about writing for the voice. There's so much to learn about how to utilize those things to help tell a story, you know. And then combining all of that with my compositional skills and the things that we were just talking about, you know, really get me excited about the possibilities of what could happen in the future. Mm. You know, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, the more and more that I've been listening to orchestral music, and the more and more I've been having these experiences in the operatic world, the more and more I'm starting to realize that there's a there's a large canvas of musical ideas that haven't been tapped yet in the orchestral world, you know? Yeah, yeah. When I think about all of the music you've written, you know, we're talking about Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Black Klansman, you know, there's very much a, a very Black centricity around it, really telling Black stories. Of course, the same is true for Champion and Fire. Are there any major differences in your approach to writing for those mediums going to see fire i would imagine for even a black person like me is very different than seeing jungle fever for the first time 
Oh man, it's all about the voice, dude. <laughs> it's all about, man, for me, well, at least for me, it's all about the voice because you know, writing for orchestra, you write for orchestra, you write for orchestra. You know what I mean? The oboes, the oboes in one orchestra is gonna be able to play that part like anybody else in another orchestra, right? Well, the voices don't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They just don't. You know, some people, you know, are called soprano, and some people are, are higher soprano. Some people are kind of like a soprano mezzo or you know and man i've it's just there's been so much that i've been learning about that and it's like really uh what's the word it's amazing you know when you start to really understand it so that's the thing that i get excited about moving forward in the operatic world because i didn't with these first two operas uh especially with champion it was the first one uh i really didn't fully understand how to use the voice hmm. You know, um, and that's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I knew how to develop melodies. I knew how to develop lines that would kind of strengthen a storyline, right? But the thing about it is, it's like knowing that sometimes a bass baritone is better to go lower than to go higher to make a point. That's the thing that I'm starting to learn. Knowing that, you know, I don't want to wear a soprano out by having to sing IAs and then at the end have a high C to sing. No, you know, it's like, you know, best wait for the most important moments of the story to utilize that part of her voice or not write things too low where they don't get a chance to, to push some sound to, to, to be able to produce, you know, sound in a, in a hall. It's so many little things like that and understanding how they have to take a breath to produce sound. Mm. You know, um, that's something that I'm also learning from certain singers, you know, they, they, they've talked to me about, you know, being able to take time to take in that huge breath to be able to produce some of the things that they sing. So it sounds like that learning process requires interaction, dialogue with the folks you want to sing it. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's the big difference, you know, in in writing, you know, uh, something for a film and then writing something for opera. I mean, the vocalists need to be really uh, a, a huge part of the creative process, you know, um, because um, it 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 helps a great deal. You know, for me, when we did Champion, you know, we workshopped it for a while, and it was really great workshopping it because I could hear, you know, what was going on. But then the other issue is that the work the people workshopping are not the people that's going to sing it. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. So then, it, that, that, and that's what I meant about the whole thing of like like one sopranos is going to be very different than another. That's what I learned in that process. What inspired you to write Champion uh, for focusing on that specific story? What 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 about that story inspired you to create this the the opera? Well, I found out about it from one of my best friend, man. His name is Michael Bent. He's a heavyweight champion. And uh, he, when once he told me about the story of Emil Griffith, I mean, I just thought he was a sympathetic character because he kept telling me how, you know, he was a guy that was, was bisexual but never really said that he was bisexual. And Mike would always tell me about how sweet of a guy he was. And in the course of, like, just, you know, being friends and having general discussions, you know, it, it it came to my attention about, you know, what happened to him. And then in terms of being uh, beaten, you know, uh, after he killed Benny Perret coming out of a coming out of a gay bar. But the the quote, that was the thing that that really solidified it for me when he said, I killed a man 
and the world forgave me, yet I love the man and the world wanted to kill me. Um, it just made me really upset to think that this guy could reach the height of his chosen endeavor and not be able to share that with anybody he loved openly it was just ridiculous to me. Hmm. It just didn't make any sense. And I kept thinking, you know, we have to really get past this, you know, uh, in, in Native American culture here, they have five definitions for sexual uh, identity, you know? Uh, so they've accepted that in that culture for generations, you know, and here it is, we're persecuting people who are not trying to turn other people into who they are, you know? Um, I thought about when I won my first award, man, I was at the, the Grammys and I, when they called my name, I turned to my wife and kissed her and hugged her and then went up on the stage. And and that was just a natural thing to do. So for him not to be able to share that just blew my mind and, you know, really hurt uh, uh, because he was a person that didn't mean any harm to anybody else. He was a very sweet personality, very loving dude. Do you think art is that thing that can get Black people as a broader community over some of those generational harms that we put on ourselves. We can, you know, talk to each other. There's certain spiritual practices that affirm loving all people. But, you know, do you feel like art is that final thing? And if not, you know, what could get us there? No, I think art is one of the final things to help us because music deals with vibration. You know what I mean? And sometimes when you're creating melodies and harmonies that create that vibration, it can it could really touch people's hearts and souls. You know, I had that happen to me with my album when we were with my band, the E-Collective, when we were doing the music for Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe campaigns, you know, a gentleman came up to me and he said he, he was so used to me playing some other stuff that when uh, he heard that music, he said, man, you guys sounded angry. He, <laughs> said, but then, he said, but then you told the audience what the music was about. And he said, and I kept thinking, well, if the guy who created A Tale of God's Will is this angry about this topic, I need to rethink my position on gun control. Mm. So I think art is very capable of touching people in a way that words can't, because sometimes, especially right now, it's we seem to be reactionary people right now when it comes to having conversations. We tend to look for holes and cracks in other people's stories as opposed to just looking at the facts and the core issues of what it is that they're talking about, you know, and 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 we're talking at each other, not listening to each other. And I think music, and visual art as well, you know, can sometimes break down that barrier of of that defense system, you know, and really allow people to 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 react honestly about what it is they're dealing with. Hmm. When I uh, went and saw Fire back in 2021, that was my first time walking in that building, you know, the Met at at Lincoln Center. I imagine that many more people will have that experience this month with Champion, their first time ever even going in there, you know, much less seeing an opera. Was that um, an ingredient in your compositional process for these operas? Were you actively thinking about the fact that people would be engaging opera as an art form for the first time because of what you're creating? Oh, definitely. But that's the purpose. That's the reason why I'm here. You know, the whole idea was to to bring in a new audience, you know, to opera when we first did it with Opera Theater St. Louis. That was that was the purpose. And the thing that um, I feel blessed about is to be able to do it with stories that allow people who look like me to see themselves on the stage, mm. you know, and to understand the culture from which the stories are coming from. 
you know when we did fire shut up in my bones people talked about that step show dance man they're yep. still talking about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know they're still talking about it and and then and then uh champion it's there's similar things you know for the gay and lesbian community man that make them feel like most of the people in the production themselves they were telling me this is the first time they've ever played a role where they felt felt like they could be truly be themselves mm. you know and 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 it's not listen man it's 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 a thing that makes me feel proud to be able to create something you know uh for people like that you know but it's not a statement about who i am it's a statement about who we are as a society you know um and it's 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 been a a beautiful experience i was talking to jim robinson last night uh, the director of the opera and uh, after the performance and i said man look around i said all of these young people are buzzing because they've taken ownership of what it is that we created you know and it's allowing them to have a sense of pride and 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 excitement and i i love that i've always believed that a new approach to opera will usher in, in some degrees, require a different engagement of the audience. You mentioned the the step dance scene in Fire. What I, I left the performance chewing on for a long time was the church scene. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, with a certain type of crowd, you know, right. the spirit starts to move, the spirit starts to move, and you'd have to pause the opera for a little while. Of course, that's not a part of the decorum of going to see an opera. I, I wonder if you've ever thought much about the different ways that different audiences will engage the opera. Maybe it's okay for my grandma to, you know, cut a rug real quick if she's moved by what she saw on stage. Oh man, let me tell you, that's one of the things I loved about that scene too, because that scene allowed people to experience their culture on the stage. Mm -hmm. and, last, and last night, you know, with the performance last night, there are a couple of moments where that happens. You know, there's Kathy Hagen, who is, is this very raucous woman who runs a, a gay and lesbian bar. And her first line, I can't repeat it on this show, but <laughs> her first line in the opera, man, on for, for her scene, brought the house down. You know, even, I mean, we're not even into the song yet. Just the first thing she says just like kills people. And then the similar thing happens with the little young man who's playing um, uh, young Emil. You know, when he sang his aria, you know, it, it, it was so moving that man we had we stopped for about three minutes wow you know? yeah i mean the crowd was going crazy for this young man and i was happy for him right but who wouldn't want that who who wouldn't want that in any performance you know you want people to be moved you know that's the reason why we're doing this you know and and for those moments man and they and they shock they shock us because we don't know exactly where they're going to be you know, we you can't predict that, but when it happens, you have to recognize it and, and allow it to 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 happen. It's like you can't just push forward and ignore, you know, what that is, because people come to these performances to get swept away. You know, Art Blake used to always say, "Music washes away the dust of everyday life." You know, and that's why people come through the doors. It's and going back to your other point. That's why I want people to feel comfortable coming through the doors. I want them to take ownership of the Met just as much as anybody else did. You know what I mean? I want them to feel like they belong there just as much as anybody else, because they do. You know, we all belong there. You know, because the, the thing about it, you know, 
<laughs> the thing about it is that um I'm, I'm just waiting I have somebody getting dressed so i'm just waiting for the noise oh sure oh, you're uh, fine. <laughs> yeah okay um the 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 thing about it is that it's most important for everybody you know to understand that this especially opera opera is supposed to be music of the people hmm. it's supposed to be music that really shines a light on our on 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 our environments and our communities right and in doing so uplift people right so i want anybody i want everybody to feel like they 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 have a right to 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 get a ticket to a show at the met because they do is there another opera coming down the the pipeline for you a third opera there is but we don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what it is yet and look i and people keep asking me and i'm like well, but just let me get a nap first before we start talking <laughs> about the, the, the next one I hear that. I hear that. Well, the, the the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, it's it's more of a broad question about uh, black engagement of opera. There are still so many people who will say to me, "Oh, well, that's for white people. Why, why, why would I bother with that at all?" What do you think is the uh, best approach to really opening the minds of people who have never considered going to see an opera, whether it's one of yours, whether it's Mozart's? Or anything in between. Why do you think it's important for Black folks to give opera a try if they never have? Because it's been important for, for them. Well, let me back up. It's important for them to realize that their community has been a part of opera for generations. You know, uh, I was upset with this one journalist uh, last year when Fire came about. He asked me, "Did did I think my opera was going to influence?" you know, young African Americans to sing opera. And I'm like, bruh, you gotta be kidding me, right? I'm like, black people have been singing opera for generations. I said, the problem is, is that most of people don't know about it because you don't cover it. Mm -hmm. So part of what we're talking about is that, you know, allowing our own community to understand who has been a part of this music from our community for the longest time. You know, Stephanie Blythe, who's who's a veteran, man, she's been around for a while. And, she, you know, she gave me the biggest compliment the other day. She said, uh, you know, I've been singing in this building for 30 years, and I really wish Leontine and Jesse could see what they birthed. Hmm. Right? And that, I got emotional behind that one. That, that, that caught me off guard, I have to tell you. But it made me think like, yeah. What they went through to shine a light on our community, right? And 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 how the community was kept from it. That's that's the wild part. You know what I mean? That that's the wild part when you think about it. So it's the reason why when we did fire, we wanted to have a premiere uh up in Harlem. You know, they showed it, you know, in Marcus Garvey Park live, you know, while it was going on. And that had an impact. So the main thing is is exposing our people to what it is that our people have been doing. You know, uh, I I was talking to one of the guys at the Met who runs archives. He's an African-American guy who just got the job in December. And one of the things we were talking about, William Grant Still, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm going to mention this to Peter Gale. They have to do one of his operas. They have to. They have to do one of his operas. And in doing so, we have to reach out to the community to let people know. With this one, you know, we went up to the Harlem School of the Arts and we went up to this other place 
called a uh, brother sister. Uh, it's a it's a it's a um, uh, it's an organization that deals with kids, you know, up in the community. And we brought some singers up there. Uh, I brought Michael Bent, who's the heavyweight champion. Had him do some mitt work with some of the students. You know, all of that stuff plays a role. there from Terrence Blanchard's Champion, that performance by Opera Parallel. Uh, let, let, let me say, but before we move on too far, <laughs> it's not that I'm trying to objectify these tenors and baritones, <laughs> but what, you want me to not say that that's something that grabs my attention, that we have shirtless men on the opera stage? I mean, and, and this isn't the first time I saw a production of Magic Flute one time where uh, th- there's a scene in Magic Flute where uh, the magic flute is played and all the animals of the forest come and help the main characters escape uh, Monostatos and, and all those people. Mm-hmm. I saw a production where the animals were depicted by men who were very buff and very cut wearing Speedos and the mask of the animal that mm. they, you know, so. And how'd you feel about so that? I, I felt very good about that. So, <laughs> so you know, n- not to not to go into objectification and all of that sort of thing, but I think we do have to admit that that is an ingredient that, is, that makes opera provocative or makes it something that, that grabs is, the attention of yes, people. Yes, that is a way to get you in there. <laughs> and also that's- Not a, me covering my tracks. That, that is artistic expression. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, there's a lot, I have not yet seen Champion. I can't wait to check it out. But just the idea of, you know, this history, you know, this black man who's gay and then he ends up killing the man in the ring who's a homophobic, a uh, homophobe. I, there, there's a lot there. Yeah. I, I think the thing I wanted to bring to you before we got into the fourth movement, one of the things that I asked Terrence was, is art that thing that can push certain communities, certain individuals beyond their various isms? In this case, homophobia. Do you think, you know, if you think in your mind, someone who is just all the way a homophobe, do you think there's the right piece of media, the right movie, maybe even the right opera that Mm -hmm. may give them the perspective that could flip that thinking in their mind? Hmm. I'm reminded of my early days in theater. Hmm. And over the course of all the shows that I've been in, I've, I've played gay characters before. Mm-hmm. And the first show that I was in in college, I played a gay man. And Was it a hey my, girl, hey gay man or just a gay man? No, it was, you know, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have known if he hadn't told you. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, which, you know, we, we have a lot of folks sure. that, are, that, that are that way. And for my dad to sit there and go, okay, I... I, I can now see with these words coming out of my son's mouth, which I have to say says a lot about my acting prowess. 
<laughs> was it just words or were there onstage actions that all- <laughs> no hey shout out to shout out to my my longtime buddy john hatcher we kissed on stage nice and you know uh, I, I went home and i was still hetero <laughs> you know yes everything so, was fine <laughs> so a lot of things you know, but what i'm saying is is that when you know this was this was the first steps of my parents being in that environment and going okay mm-hmm. okay i can kind of see where and you know now my father's very accepting as you know yeah yeah he's great but that wasn't always the case mm-hmm so I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to dig my dad into a hole here. But I think that um, when when you're right there with the medium, I think that live music, live theater, live opera, sure. live dance has the potential to be more impactful because the barriers are gone. Like they were talking about with the Bellingham Symphony Orchestra, the, mm-hmm. the first movement. The, there's fewer barriers. You get hit with the with with the meaning and the uh, and the revelations in the moment right there. And with Champion, it seems like there are levels of that that are being explored, not only normalizing a person who is gay, but normalizing a black person who is gay, normalizing a boxer who is black being gay, who isn't necessarily the hey girl, hey kind of uh, gay person like I am, or you know how many people may perceive me to be, but just normalizing the spectrum, the diversity of a single community. Mm. I think it sh- shines a beautiful light on that, you know, and not to mention that this is a true story. We're, sh- we're shining a light on on history. So huge, huge congratulations to uh, Terrence Blanchard. Uh, can't wait to go see Champion myself. I don't, I can't remember if it uh, made the tape or not, but uh, I asked uh, Terrence, I said, is there going to be a, a third opera? Is a third opera coming down the, the pipeline? He said, I don't know when the hell I'm going to write it, but sure, it's coming down the pipeline. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to uh, transition here into the final movement this week with a work by Gabriella Lena Frank. This is a movement, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, you talked about uh, Paolo Bellinati uh, mm-hmm. writing about people from different heritages and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Well, the final movement of Gabriella Lena Frank's three Latin American dances is called the Mestizo Waltz, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, sure. a similar idea. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this. I'll explain why we're listening to it and then we'll get into the subject matter of the final movement. This okay. That's Keith Lockhart there with the Utah Symphony. You know, I, I know we like to pick on the fact that Yannick is doing such a great job that we're always saying his name. Right. Once upon a time, I'm sure that was the case for Keith Lockhart as well. All of the pops sort of CDs that yeah. I remember going through in my early days of radio is Keith Lockhart with the Boston Pops or Keith yep. Lockhart with the Cincinnati Pops or, yep. or whatever. So, it, you know, th- there's something to be said about what you can affix yourself to and be known for and how that will last 
um, historically, you know, the staying power of that thing. I celebrate Keith Lockhart. Never met the man. I celebrate him because I know that he really emphasized pops or or new approaches to to music. So, you know, quick shout out to him. But we're here in the uh, final movement, the Triloquy movement. We listened to that piece of music because that's actually the last piece of music I aired at Minnesota Public Radio before I got the axe. I'm thinking about abrupt departures from institutions because all over the news today, at least all over my Twitter uh, timeline, was broadcast bloodbath. Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon are out in major media shakeup. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship these days with cable news? Maybe we should start there. Do you do you watch news? And if you do, by what means are you watching news? I do watch news and I tend to gravitate more to PBS NewsHour. Mm for the video piece. And that's mainly because they're the only ones in the game that are doing real journalism. Who, what, where, when, why, how, no punditry. Anyway, um, I quit watching CNN when they had a new president come in and he met with members of the GOP to ask them questions about how CNN could cover them better. (laughs) Guess what? (laughs) News people do not do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You go in and you ask everybody, you, you, you go in and you get the who, what, where, why, and how that's, that's doing news. What were you about to say? I'm well, I, the first, and this is not us, you know, advocating or shitting on any cable news in particular. Let me, let me start by saying that MSNBC is a channel that I never was interested in because it just so obviously felt slanted. It felt mm-hmm. like they're trying to talk to me or convince me of, a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every now and again, I, I like to t- turn it over to Fox just because I, I'm, I'm here for the mess. The America you know? channel. <laughs> well, I, I'm here for the mess every now and again. Just want to see what's happening. And I've, I've grown to treat CNN the exact same way. If I really want to know what's happening right now in the moment, if someone on my Twitter timeline is talking about a shooting or something unfortunate, yeah, I will jump over to CNN just to see what what they're talking about. Right. But I'm with you. It's like the punditry when it comes to news that, you know, I've, I'm just sort of done with. Not to say that there isn't a place for punditry. In, in many cases, we are that, you know, sure. but we also aren't here trying to you know, claim to be a verified news source, again, dubious factual claims or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. You know, so I, I guess that's the first place where I, I wanted to start. I thought it was very interesting, though, that these events didn't leave room for one. And again, I don't like the language of one side or the other, but for the sake of this conversation, it didn't leave room for one side to say, oh, aha, look at y'all. Y'all's guy got fired. You know, both both sides got it. It seems like that had to have been coordinated in some way. That feels like too good of a, of a, a, a what word am I looking for? Coincidence. A coincidence. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you bring that up because I was listening to a news report just before coming over here to record where it said they this was not a coordinated thing. That's what they want us to believe. Well, sure, but <laughs> see now I, my Fox News watching is, is showing right. up. <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, I I do tune in to other news sources because you got to hear what other, of course, but you know, because yeah. the truth is somewhere in the middle, and you can usually piece it together. As far as Tucker Carlson leaving, uh, you know, you know that they Fox had to pay like almost eight hundred million dollars. Yep, because they were lying on those voting because machines. they lied on the air. This might be a, com- it's hard to not read the tea leaves and think that these two are unconnected, you know, that mm-hmm. they had that settlement and it might be, okay, now you got to get rid of the guy who was leading the charge. I don't know. 
I, I, I want Tucker Carlson on Triloquy. Let's get him as a, a third movement guest. You're, you're interviewing him. <laughs> okay. So next question regarding this, and, and this is you know how I'm thinking about tying this to the arts. We think about decisions that have to be made around programming, maybe even some uh, instances who a conductor is or who a concert master is and you know all that stuff how they have built rapport with an audience, with a community, and ousting them is something that the organization might not want to do for the sake of maintenance of an audience. Do you think either Fox or CNN uh, was thinking about that or is thinking about that? Do you think ousting the stars of those respective stations will, at the end of the day, have a real impact on viewership? Mm. I can't speak for CNN, but probably on the Fox front. They're going to, th- those viewers are going to run to somewhere even more conservative. Tucker and Hannity are, they're, they're, their reach goes beyond. They're, they're ebony and ivory. Their, <laughs> their reach goes beyond just the news, right? So sure. they're, 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 it's more of a cultural, right? Their yeah. influence is felt all over. Um, I, with CNN, I can, who can say? Sure. I mean, it, it seems like they're throwing anything against the wall to see what sticks. So again, to flip that over to the arts, do you think there's any connection um, with what arts institutions are or aren't willing to do versus what the risk actually isn't at the end of the day? You know, let's let's fast forward six months before any of this happened, even a year. I'm sure there are folks over at Fox or at CNN who would say, well, if you get rid of Tucker or you get rid of Don Lemon, you know, that's not that's not going to be great for us. Mm-hmm. The, both stations are going to survive. Both stations are going to be fine. To me, it seems like some of the risk aversion that arts institutions, you know, sort of face or, or you know, use as their reason to not change is not really a risk because your institution is going to be fine. There may be some growing pains. There may be a couple concerts where people are doing a thing or saying a thing, but that doesn't mean the destruction of the institution. Minnesota Public Radio got plenty of fire thrown at it when they let me go, but the institution is still there. At the end of the day, it wasn't that much of a risk. So I think in general, um, you know, on the more positive side, if we talk about broadening programming or or integrating, for lack of a better word, other aesthetics or whatever into what an arts uh, institutions gives to a community, what they see as risk at the end of the day isn't risk. There may be some bumpy road, but it doesn't mean that your whole radio station, your whole orchestra, your whole conservatory is just going to burn to the ground because you're shifting things. It comes down to money. Fox News has uh, $4 billion in the bank. So they're going to be able to pay this and they're still going to be able to go on. However, there will be sponsors that drop. Mm. There will be people that stop You know their, their ad campaigns. Um, be, just because Tucker was a draw. And when you... Talk about programming for something like a radio or a television station. Every time I've been in a station that did a format change, there was always a drop in their listenership. There was always a drop in people pulling their advertisements because they say, you were going after a certain subset that we wanted to market to. Mm -hmm. And now that you're not going to hit that anymore, we're taking our money someplace that does. So if a station is connected to an organization that has the money to keep pumping it until it can get that new audience listening. Uh, if, if you don't have that and your listenership and your advertisement drops away, your station goes away. Well, real question though, 
How many times have you been a part of a radio station that does a format change and six months, one year down the line, that radio station dissolved or, or, or couldn't pay its bills, went, went away completely? Um, not that the station went away, but the format has changed suit uh, yearly. No, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. A format change from what I'm understanding from you has yet in your experience to result in a whole station going away or a station going defunct. So even though there are those bumpy roads of people pulling sponsorship and listeners going elsewhere, that doesn't mean the radio station or this new format is going anywhere either. So why can't we do that with our orchestras? Why can't we do that with our conservatories? There may be a couple years where people don't apply to Manus or Juilliard because that's not the school that I wanted to go to or whatever, but other people will. And that means a new culture is being cultivated. Again, I just don't like this idea of risk because from the you know taking a, a cue from cable news what many people would consider a risk or even a, the, a nail in a coffin for these institutions it's not going to be at the end of the day if that's the case for CNN and Fox I think it's much it's much smaller marbles for an orchestra or a, or a school of music to worry about going under because they're changing format or they're changing what they offer to audiences. Yes, again, as I've been repeating, the bumpy road is there, but that doesn't mean it's all going to go to shit. It just means it's going to be different. With a different format, a different uh, sound. And a different audience. You know? Right. And so if you don't get that audience, are you going to keep on doing that? Are you going to keep on playing that format if you're not getting audience? No. So the company, like let's say Clear Channel, in the in the example that I'm thinking of in mm -hmm. Omaha, they've got deep pockets, and so they can afford to try this new rock format over here for a year, right? So I guess really what we're talking about is the arts institutions have development departments that need to do their due diligence, that need to stand up and make some money so that that can't be the excuse so anymore. So you, you want to have, <laughs> have some lunch meetings between the conductor and the, and the development department so they can talk about how they're going to engage audiences? Yes, and they're paying there we for go. lunch, period. <laughs> <Right>. Okay. <laughs> well, thoughts and prayers to everyone. You know, what the, the, the final thing that I will say, I remember reading over and over again from people who have never met me, you know, when I was going through my thing, saying stuff like, oh, well, he'll be fine. Or, you know, he's talented. He'll land on his feet and da, da, da. You know, so I appreciate that affirmation. But when you're in the moment, it doesn't always it feel like that. It no. feels like, oh, shit, what's about to happen with, with my life? Yes. So I won't say that, you know, out of my compassion for either Tucker uh, nor Don. We don't we don't know where where they're going to land, what, what's going to happen. and from my perspective, it seems like they will be just fine. They they need to partner up. See, if there was the Tucker and Don podcast, oh my! So now I'm tuning in. So right. so, so, so now I'm a weekly subscriber. You know, there's that would be a thing. You know, there's rumblings of a Tucker run for president, right? So, all right, never mind. See y'all next week.